reading of God's Word. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is God's Word. You may be seated. A few months ago we had a young man approach us needing help. Uh, he was in a tough spot. His name was Andy. And uh, we kind of, Brian and Michael and I got together with him and, and tried to develop something of a plan. But his his life was really in a shambles. And we, we of course, didn't want to just throw cash at this. And so we had ideas of how to help him, you know, keep long-term employment, how to get his GED, find housing, um, transportation. And he ended up walking away from our help. And, you know, we would ask why, and of course I can't look into anybody's heart, um, but I think he probably thought, well, his own way was ultimately better. He thought he could do it on his own. He, He was truly a foolish young man. And this phenomenon plays itself out over and over again in the lives of sinful people like ourselves. Um, Men and women will leave the blessing of, say, a loving spouse in in divorce, a loving spouse and family, for some notion of of grandeur that they have in their head. They just give it up. To follow a dream, to seek pleasure or excitement. Or people will get dragged in drug and alcohol abuse. Um, and, And knowing that it's killing them, they still go deeper and deeper into it. And, of course, those of us on the outside are looking in, going, what are you doing? Why are you being so foolish? You're trading all these blessings that you have for things that you think you want, but are destroying your life in the process. So we kind of start to wonder, sometimes quite literally, are you going insane? Have you lost your marbles? Or like Paul, here, has somebody cast a spell on you? Are are you bewitched? Paul here sees the, the Galatian people trading the glories of Christ crucified for a works righteousness plan of salvation. They're the worst possible trade you can make. So he says, why? You fools! You're tossing out the riches of glory for certain death. His only conclusion is somebody's cast a spell on these folks. They're bewitched. This text is forceful in its tone and Paul's blunt sarcasm is really something of a slap across the face. Um, Not so much for punitive effect, but to, to wake these people up, to bring the Galatians back from their bewitchment, from their spell. 
by God's grace, we have Paul's words available to us today to read and to apply in the Holy Spirit so we can be warned of the dangers of bewitchment and even perhaps be slapped across our face if we need it. Sometimes we need a jolt. Uh, So this passage is the first in what's generally conceived of as the main body of the letter of Galatians. Um, In the first two chapters, Paul has defended his apostleship and his gospel, that his gospel is the gospel of Christ. So if you reject Paul's gospel, you reject Christ. And now in, in verses three and four, or chapters three and four, he's going to explain doctrinally. This is what the gospel consists of. And five and six, he will apply the gospel. He begins this body of the letter with a pointedness that really rivals anything in his writings. He, he, he's fired up about this, and he should be, because this is a gospel issue. He begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? People don't write like that these days. We have a gospel of nice to uphold. I thought about titling the sermon Slapping the Bewitched, but I thought that's too, that's too harsh for the bulletin. So I'm, I'm even getting a little soft here. But imagine if a missionary wrote a letter like this with this kind of verbiage to somebody he'd preached the gospel to before. Um, Maybe if Paul were a modern missionary, what, what would people say? He'd probably lose his mission funding. But the truth is that spiritual, spiritually sleeping people and bewitched people need to be shaken back into reality sometimes. And we see this over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus, perhaps chief of all, but Paul... Peter, we saw in Jude, one of the harshest, perhaps the harshest letter. And then the, the Old Testament, I mean, that, that's like one big shaking the nation of God for the whole Old Testament. That may be hyperbole, but... The sad reality is that for every one teacher willing to stand up and say, no, that will actually result in damnation, There's a hundred, maybe a thousand, who would rather sing lullabies and say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So while it may not seem very pastoral to us, for Paul to to speak this way, uh, according to our our modern conceptions of of the pastoral role, um, he is, in fact, tending and caring for the sheep in love. This is exactly what Paul is doing. I am planning to, Lord willing, tomorrow going to go visit my friend in Grand Junction. He lives in San Diego. He's a drummer in the Marine Corps band. And he's visiting his, his wife's parents in Montrose. So we're going to try to meet up, a childhood friend. And he, he goes to a really solid Reformed Baptist church out there in San Diego. And that, that church must be really good at marketing or something because their sermon clips come across my Facebook feed. But... He's a really good preacher, a really good communicator. And one of these clips uh, really hit me. And it, it really described better than I've ever heard the relationship between the gentleness and the fierceness of a shepherd. Um, he, he described it kind of in this way, that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And, and if we're going to say Jesus was perfect, he, he perfectly demonstrated all the fruit of the Spirit. He was sinless. And... He drove money changers out of the temple with a whip. Now, was that gentle? 
Does that demonstrate gentleness? Of course it was gentle because he's perfect. But unto whom was it gentle? When Jesus and Paul and and Peter and Jude use harsh words, um, they're doing it for the protection of the sheep. When David rose up and took the lion by the beard and and slit his throat or stabbed his heart with a stick or, or bashed his head with a rock or however he killed the lion, that was violent to the lion, but it was the essence of gentleness toward the sheep. A gentle shepherd is fierce toward the threat and gentle toward his flock. Like the gentle mother, she's not going to be uh, messed with when her children are threatened. On the other hand, sometimes the sheep put themselves in danger. They meander too close to to fast-moving water or towards the edge of a precipice. And the gentleness and kindness of a shepherd would dictate that he run in front of them and is fairly firm with them, swat them with a stick, or or yell at them, or round up the dogs to herd them away from the danger. That's the nature of Paul's tone here. That's why he's harsh. He's not doing it to be mean or punitive, but to protect the sheep from danger. So he says, Oh foolish Galatians. Um, So the first word is, Oh some translations don't have it, but it's in the Greek. Well, one preacher I was listening to noted that this is not a word you use in everyday conversation. Oh, oh, foolish Galatians. You hear it sometimes, like a mother might say in disappointment, Oh, oh son. You know, it's a kind of a tone of longing to see him use wisdom. And a bit of disappointment. Jesus, uh, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus... They were missing the point of Christ's death and glorification. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He longs to see these people understand and apply the truths available to them in the Old Testament, but they're missing it. So he says, O foolish disciples. I think we should have that same longing in our hearts that the people around us would uh, find biblical wisdom and see Christ with clarity. And I think moreover, we should have that concern for ourselves. We see that in the Psalms, this language in the Psalms of the psalmists kind of preaching to themselves and to their own soul. They're urging their souls when their vision of Yahweh is dimmed or, or blocked or obscured. Uh, we see in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. Or Psalm 62, For God alone, O my soul. He's preaching to His soul. Wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 116, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Psalm 146, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. So he begins with, O, with this desire, this longing for them to do what's right. And he also calls them Galatians. 
You notice in, in Philippians the tender tone in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That stark contrast between, oh, Galatians, oh, foolish Galatians. Or even in Galatians, in chapter 1, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. But but here, he's rebuking them, and he calls them Galatians, foolish Galatians. I think it would be something like saying to the American church, uh, to us, foolish Americans. There's no difference between you, American church, and the, the culture around you. You're not distinct. You have the same besetting sins. Oh, foolish Americans. I think that's the same thing that Paul's getting at here. He, he identifies them not by Christian titles, but by geographical title. Not saints or brothers or beloved, but uh, Galatians. Have you ever had your identity as a Christian challenged? Like based on the fruit that people are seeing in your life? Like they're wondering if you're a Christian? I have. Uh, and I, I have to tell you that that stings. That, that is something that's truly jolting. When somebody says, you claim to be Christ, uh, to, to, to be of Christ, but to be honest, I'm not seeing a lot of fruit right now. And actually the fruit I'm seeing is not very good. That's jolting. And praise God that if a person is a true believer, I think the Holy Spirit will use that type of experience to kind of splash a cup of cold water in a person's face. If we are in Christ, and if the Galatians were in Christ, then we want to be identified with Christ and His church and not with the world. So the preferable term would be saints rather than Galatians or Americans. Notice here he's not afraid to call them foolish and notice, foolish, not dumb, but foolish. I was telling my mom, who's been a teacher her whole life, mostly of young kids, like first, second grade, and of course raised three kids. I, I was telling her the hardest part about teaching, and I was kind of thinking more with my kids in mind, but it's true of any teaching context, uh, is I thought it would be the frustration of their slowness to understand, like their mental capacities. But that's not... The frustration at all. The far and away, the greatest frustration of teaching is when the student doesn't apply the abilities he has. Even a person with limited intellectual capacity can learn a great deal if they apply themselves. One lexicon defines the term foolish in this way uh, pertaining to unwillingness to use one's mental faculties in order to understand. Not dumb, unwillingness to use them. That's why Paul's conclusion is not, well, these Galatians are just imbeciles. They don't get it. It's no, they must be under some kind of spell. They're bewitched. They're not thinking or, or acting according to what they know to be true from the gospel that I have preached to them. They're mentally and spiritually hijacked. Which is why he asks, Who has bewitched you? Uh, In the modern West, notions of kind of black magic uh, spell casting are not familiar to us as they are maybe in other times or other places. Um, But they're very real. And 
they're making somewhat of a comeback these days. But in those days, it was more prevalent. And literally, the word um, means to bewitch a person uh, frequently by the use of the evil eye and with evil intent. To be, to be bewitched, to practice magic on. He's, he's literally saying, somebody's cast a spell on you. We do sometimes use the word in our context when we're talking about something captivating, like her eyes are bewitching or her smile is bewitching. And the idea is that we're captivated by some kind of spell that alters our way of thinking and our way of acting. And Paul wants to know here, who's bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Of course, they probably weren't spellbound um, by like a hypnotist or a sorcerer, literally. Um, you know, like, like Mowgli in the, in the <laughs> Jungle Book when Ka's got his twirly eyes and looking him in the face and he's, he's literally bewitching him. Um, Satan uses people to teach his doctrines. And ultimately, that's who the deceiver is, is, is through the false teaching, he is the deceiver. And he captivates us in all manner of ways. Uh, Luther says, Let nobody think then that it was only the Galatians who were bewitched by the devil. Each of us might have been and still may be bewitched by him. None of us is so strong that we are able to resist him, especially if we attempt to do so by our own strength. He goes on in a little par- couple paragraphs later. I myself, though I am a doctor of divinity and, and have now preached Christ and fought against the devil in his false teachers for a long while, have found in my own experience how difficult this is. I cannot shake Satan off as I wish, nor can I experience Christ as the scripture shows him. The the deceiver wishes to distract us, to captivate us by anything that's not Christ. It's important that distraction and the alluring bewitchment of the devil do not always come um, in the form of kind of like the classical seven deadly sins. They may, you know, they certainly can. Uh, But sometimes he uses morally neutral or morally good things to distract us. He may use something obvious like lust to captivate us. I've been reading Genesis a good bit this week and it seems like every successive generation is more and more sexually deviant. It's just this pervasive sin that captivates the human race. He uses that. Certainly, none of us is above those temptations, so we must beware. But what about those morally neutral things? Take entertainment, for example. How much time do we spend captivated by various forms of entertainment? See, Satan doesn't really need the the spells and the black magic in the West because we're all kind of tranquilized by sensation. To borrow from Neil Postman, we are amusing ourselves to death. And then there's the flip side to the same coin that the enemy loves to use on us as well, and that is legalism. Because entertainment isn't bad in and of itself. We know the dangers of overindulgence and we build fences around God's law that were never meant to be there. Like Eve in the garden. God said, you shall not eat of the tree. She said, we shall not eat of it or touch it. Building fences. 
or the Pharisees went so far to uh, dictate how many steps a person could take from their home on the Sabbath before it constitutes work. But you could, like the day before, stash a cache of food, and then that would constitute as kind of a mini home. And then you could extend your range on the Sabbath. Like Absurd fences, but we do that. We put legalistic fences around things that aren't meant to be there. And then he may use things to bewitch us, um, to replace that which is ultimate with that which is good. Paul Washer, I may have shared this with you before, but he had a great story. Um, of, he, he is a well-known homeschooling advocate, and he, he had a pastor call, friend call him who was also a homeschooling advocate. And he said, Paul, I want you to preach to my church. <laughs> Paul said, well, he said, I want you to preach the gospel to my church. And he said, well, why? He said, I think some of my people might be unsaved. And Paul said, why? And he said, well, because they're homeschoolers. <laughs> and Paul said, well, brother, you are a homeschooler. And the pastor said, yeah, but I fear that if I ask my people to stand up and give their testimony, some of them would, might begin, well, I found homeschooling five years ago. Replacing the ultimate with that which is good. We tend to do that. It's easy to replace that which is ultimate with that which is penultimate or tertiary. To lift up the good, to venerate it to the point of idolatry. And I'll tell you that Reformed folks are at times in danger of falling into this trap. I've heard conversion stories that go along the similar lines while I discovered the doctrines of grace five years ago. The doctrines of grace are wonderful. When people discover them, there's truly a paradigm shift. And I don't know anybody who's experienced that shift and has said, it was no big deal in my spiritual walk. It is a big deal. But, But for our Reformed brothers and sisters, this... The, the reason these doctrines of the Reformation are such a paradigm shifter is, and, and the reason we treasure them is because they highly esteem Christ before our eyes. Reformed theology is precious because it, insofar as it is biblical, preaches the gospel of Christ with clarity, purity, and precision. My same friend that I'm hoping to see tomorrow has kind of come to adopt the doctrines of grace over the last four or five years. Um, and last time I saw him, he said, the big difference I, I've noticed is in the way that we view the atonement. He said, I remember asking you what some of your favorite books were, and, and one of them was on the atonement. And he thought that was strange at first, but he said, I never really thought about what the atonement actually means. Like, what, what happened that day? See, that's what we want with our theology. We want people thinking about the cross of Christ. And the moment that that theology becomes in itself ultimate, to the point that Christ becomes penultimate, we have become bewitched and idolaters. So give me the most theologically confused believer in Christ, ten times out of ten, over a person who has all their reformed theological ducks in a row, but doesn't know Christ. And make no mistake about it, those people exist. So I want us to be aware of that. And I I don't think, at the same time, we should be afraid to use titles like Reformed. There's an unhelpful fear in our day about labels. (laughs) 
Labels are good. They provide clarity. And tradition is good. The man who says he has no tradition is the most dangerous because he's in no position to critique his own tradition, which he does have, according to Scripture. But we never, ever, ever let our identity be tradition or a label. Our identity is in Christ. So that's why Paul is so perturbed here with the Galatians, is they're allowing other things to be their satisfaction and their righteousness before God, and they're obscuring Christ. They're obscuring the gospel. That's why he's fired up. That's why he's hot. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Or actually, I like the NAS better here. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Um, they should know better. <laughs> They're the ones who, before whose eyes publicly Christ was portrayed as crucified. It's not like they're first-time comers. It's not like they're ignorant or imbeciles. They know Paul's gospel. They've heard it. This phrase here is a little strange. Before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Does that, does that mean they were somehow in Jerusalem on that day when Jesus died? Or, or perhaps Paul came through with kind of a show of like the, the passion play and they saw it portrayed as um, the word publicly portrayed. I like the word placarded. Um, it's it's pro, prographo, which means literally to write before or to write above. It's the idea of posting a notice for everybody to see a public notice, like kind of like the, the plaque above Christ's head. Or, or think of Luther posting the 95 theses on the door for everybody to see. This is what Paul did when he came and proclaimed the gospel in Galatia as a missionary. Christ was placarded before their eyes as crucified. But they've been bewitched. They've been distracted from the ultimate and drawn away into false religion. Galatians 2, at the end of Galatians 2, Paul really describes his understanding of the relationship between law-keeping and the cross. He says, For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." So he's saying if you, if you try to achieve righteousness through the law, you're, you're making null the, the cross of Christ, because that's why Christ died. But they, they would say, well, we find righteousness in Christ and in works of the law and in circumcision. But Paul makes it very plain. If, if you are seeking to find any righteousness in the law, you are making void the cross of Christ. And this really is the main point I think that he's getting at is that the Galatians in a bewitched stupor are unwittingly trading the work of Christ for their own work. Even though they say Christ plus some works, they're they're trading the two. Christ's work for their work. I like to watch climbing movies. Kelly says, you like to watch um, mountaineering movies, but you don't like to go... (laughs) Go up there yourself, and I'm 
yeah, I like to observe from the comfort of my own couch. Uh, uh, and one of the great ones is, is called Meru. It's a documentary about these guys. And in 2008, um, Conrad Anker, Jimmy Chin, and Renan Ozturk attempted to climb the unclimbed shark's fin of a peak named Meru in the Himalayas in India. And the challenge of this climb is that it's 21,000 feet high. Uh, it's 4,000 feet of regular alpine climbing. So like think Everest, you know, ice and ice picks and just climbing the mo- a mountain. And then atop of that mountain is a 1,500 foot big wall style climb. Think like Yosemite climbing. Uh, just featureless granite to the top. So they have to take all this gear with them because there's all this type of climbing. And it, it's 21,000 feet in the Himalayas. Uh, they failed to climb it in 2008. They were 100 meters from the summit, and they had to turn around. When they failed, other climbers tried to climb it, and, and Conrad Anker said, well, if they make it, that'd be great, because we don't have to climb it. <laughs> and you kind of get the sense. They're trying to climb this to conquer it for humanity's sake. Um, in 2011, the trio made another attempt and did reach the summit, the first people on top of the shark's fin. Um, and there's a sense in which, according to Conrad Anker's logic, humanity as a whole can claim their summit for, for ourselves. You know, like we say, we've been to the moon. I haven't been to the moon, but we as humanity have been to the moon. I have to say, I'm happy to let those three men represent me in that feat. (laughs) I could try to do it myself. I could take on the training and the the vertical climbing and the temperatures well below zero and the hypoxic symptoms um, of being at high altitude and hauling 200 pounds of gear up this mountain. Uh, Honestly, if I poured everything I had into it every waking moment for decades, I'm never going to stand on top of the shark's fin. (laughs) I don't have the... physical faculties or the mental faculties to make that happen. I have a better shot of being on the moon someday. The reality is three of the world's best climbers barely made it and I I would give up on the way to the mountain. My point is that I would have to be insane or bewitched to attempt that impossible summit myself. I'm far better off claiming their success as my representative of humanity and what a relief that is that I don't have to climb it myself. Effectively, that's what these Galatians are doing. They're trading what Christ has already done on their behalf for what they want to and think they can do on their own. They can summit on their own strength. And how foolish that is. I mean, they need to know that, that it's finished. They need to know that they don't have to contribute to Christ's cross work. And, and the sad reality that many people don't understand is, is we want to say, well, I'll climb the mountain with Christ. He'll be my helper as I go along. Or even, he'll do most of the work and I'll just chip in where I can. But the truth is that the moment you set foot on that mountain, you're judged based on how far up you got and not how up, far up Christ got. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. 
So my exhortation this morning to you is do not trade the work of Christ for your own work. Do, do not be bewitched by the spells of the devil. To add to the, the works of the law, to, to the works of Christ, is to take on the whole mountain alone, and, and that's foolishness. Instead, keep your eyes on Christ, who has been placarded before your eyes as crucified. He, he has reached the summit on your behalf. Amen. Let's stand and sing a hymn of response. My faith looks up to thee. 528. Come